Good evening. Great to be with you tonight as we continue our series through the book of 1 Peter, Sojourners Living as We Long for Home. And tonight we're going to talk about servanthood and the suffering of Christ. Servanthood and the suffering of Christ. Before we get started, let's pray again together. Father, what a privilege to be here tonight, Lord Jesus, and I uh, just pray you would speak to us, Lord, and minister to us and help us to be that people, God, that you have called us to be that is unique in the world, whose hope is in, God, the sweet by and by, the shore, uh, that blessed shore that we await to meet you there, God, and let our hope in the certainty of what awaits us, Lord, cause us to live beautiful lives here, God. Lives that are unshakable, God, by the shifting circumstances of life because we have a guaranteed hope, Lord, in a world free from sin with you. So teach us how to live, Lord as sojourners, living as we long for home. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And um, we're talking about servanthood and the suffering of Christ. And um, I just wanted to begin by reading a passage from the Old Testament uh, about the practice of Hebrew slavery that is fascinating. In Deuteronomy fifteen twelve through 17, it says, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever, and to your female slave you shall do the same. Why do I read that passage this text is he's going to he's going to talk he's been talking about submission to authority and this next one will be servants to their masters and I read that passage because it's quite interesting and we're going to talk about it a little bit more but I, what I want to draw what this should draw attention to though is is part of it is the difference between the ancient Hebrew practice of slavery and what we think of when we think of slavery uh, slavery but what's most fascinating about this passage is that this, the passage contemplates something that's almost unthinkable to us, that a person in service to another person, the, this passage anticipates a circumstance where that, where that person would think, I don't want to be free. I want to belong to this person forever. That's astounding, isn't it? What is that? What does that even mean? 
Well, I can't try to give a whole biblical theology of that right now, but I just want to say that what it is, it's a, it's a pointer to something greater. We're slaves of God. Joyful, glad slaves of God. In fact, would that God would put an all through my ear so that I could serve him and his house forever. It's a pointer to something greater. Someone who's so great that serving him is better than being free. In fact, maybe that's what it truly means to be free, is to serve him. And so it changes things. It puts things in perspective. And so uh, we're going to talk about this a little bit more deeply tonight as we talk about servanthood and the suffering of Christ. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if... When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word of God may be seated. So I want to see three truths tonight. Number One, in Christ we submit even to unjust authority. In Christ we submit even to unjust authority. Number two, in Christ we suffer for good in the steps of Christ. We suffer for good in the steps of Christ. And number three, in Christ we die to sin and follow Christ. We die to sin and follow Christ. First, number one, in Christ we submit even to unjust authority. Uh, We talk about this passage, and this is one of the reasons I preach through the Bible uh, try to preach through books of the Bible because I probably wouldn't pick this passage out the blue to preach to you. Uh, our cultural moment makes it especially difficult to understand and teach this passage. And as I said, I can't really begin now to even do partial justice to a full-orbed biblical understanding of the concept of slavery and servanthood. But we do need to address it briefly. Uh, I'm going to focus especially on the New Testament here. Peter and Paul especially command servants and slaves to obey their masters. Uh, it must be understood that Roman slavery in the first century was not identical to Southern American antebellum slavery. And so we have to get the, we have to get the context right in our minds. Um, the type of slavery that we're talking about is not the same thing. When we think of slavery, we think of that Southern antebellum slavery. But Roman slavery was different, but it was full of its 
own injustices as well, but it was much more diverse. Okay? So in the Roman system, it was not race-based, and it was not based on false theological and scientific theories uh, that some races were lesser than others, which if you go back and see, that was part of the reason for um, a race-based slavery. In, Roman, in the Roman system, many slaves were war captives, and some were in slavery to pay off debts. Uh, many slaves were well-educated. In fact, some of them were more educated than their masters. Uh, and they could, uh, some of them could even attain high, quite high esteem within the household. And it was possible in some cases for slaves to earn enough money on the side to purchase their freedom. And in fact, uh, depending on what, whose household you were in as a servant or as a slave... You, you actually had, uh, uh, oftentimes they would have more social mobility. That means more mobility within the society in terms of making things happen and things like that, influence, if you will, than, say, a free peasant who was poor who worked on a, uh, a wealthy landowner's estate. Um, uh, in this day, slaves could be doctors, philosophers, household managers, and teachers. Okay. And uh, from a biblical perspective, Jesus told lots of parables about servants and masters. Uh, For example, the parable of the talent, in that parable, Jesus builds on this uh, general understanding of what this type of relationship was like. And in uh, in that particular parable, he talks about the master doing what? Entrusting the servants with the master's property, and the, the servants basically in that sense were stewards. They were managers of the, the, the master's property, and they had a great deal of freedom to steward it according to the master's interest, knowing that they'd be ultimately accountable to the master for how they uh, stewarded uh, the resources. And so, um, and so we see that the first century ideas of Jewish and Roman slavery were rather different from our own, and that's even made manifest from the passage that we read at the beginning. Okay, uh, just other things we should note about this issue as well. Nowhere in the Bible does the Bible actively promote slavery; rather, it acknowledges it as a reality in a fallen world, and therefore regulates it. And we must wrestle with the fact that Paul and Peter uh, do not actively attack the practice as it was in their day. I would argue that the teaching of Christianity and Christian principles undermined the practice, but nevertheless, Paul and Peter did not view it as their mission. uh, They didn't view their mission as one of overturning social structures. And besides that, Christianity as a fledgling movement was in nowhere near the position to initiate such change in Roman society. And so we have to understand that too. They lived in a different context than we did. And so... You know, as a fledgling movement in a large Roman society, they were not in a position to try to try to correct uh, abuses and evils in that way. Whereas we, I think we do actually, our context actually uh, is a little bit different than that. Since we live in a democratic republic and we do have a voice in society, which we should exercise, uh, that, the, that the society gives us for now then I believe we should exercise that insofar as we can to help, um, to help uh, uh, give justice to those who need it. So there's a slightly different context there. But at the same time, I think we, we do have to wrestle with that. P- 
Peter and Paul did not view their mission as overturning social structures. It seems that their view is more consistent with Jesus' teaching of the kingdom of God infiltrating, infiltrating the world as branches slowly spread throughout, as the vine spreads across the trellis, if you will, as the vine spreads, recapturing the, spreads across the world, recapturing the world for Christ. That is, we as Christians are to view ourselves as resident aliens in the world. And I think this is a core teaching of the New Testament that I think that I think we just don't believe enough and we don't trust enough and we don't embrace enough. And frankly, we want to be too friendly with the world to do it. And that is that when we in Christ our identity our identity in Christ utterly and completely take, relativizes every other identity that we have. Our identity in Christ becomes supreme. Our identity as a citizen of the heavenly kingdom, which will last a lot longer than any earthly kingdom, is, is so utterly supreme and foremost in the way that we look at the world that we just don't think about the world the way everyone else does. In other, it, it, without Christ, if people who don't know Christ, their greatest hope is in the world. That's why there's, and, and that's why there's, I think there's so much appeal. I, I'm going to get in trouble here. I think that's why there's so much appeal to people to look to politics to be their savior. Because they think, well, if we can just get some people in place or get a system in place, well, that'll make the world really great. But the problem is, is that the problem is, is that we're sinners living in a sinful world. No matter how much you rearrange sinful people, they're still going to sin. And so, and so, while we should, I'd, while we should strive to create a just society in as much as we can, I don't think the Bible ever promises us a just society this side of Christ's return. We should strive for that, but it's not our ultimate goal, and it's not our ultimate goal to make America heaven on earth because it will never be that. And it's impossible to make it that apart from supernatural regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And so unless everyone in America got saved, America's not going to be heaven on earth because the only way that we can create such a society is people being born again by the spirit so that they don't demand and want their own way and want the best for themselves but they're humble servants of other people putting other people's interests before their own that's supernatural and it can only be created by God and so we betray ourselves when we put too much hope in the world Our ultimate identity is in Christ, and Paul and Peter build on this so foundationally to the point that, I didn't put this in there, but to the point that Paul actually tells, in, I think it's in Corinthians, he says, uh, remain as you are. And he says, were you, a, were you a slave? Were you a slave when converted? He actually says, don't be concerned about it. Now, if you can get your freedom, take, avail yourself of that opportunity. But whoever is free is a slave to Christ, and whoever is a slave is free in Christ. In other words, his perspective is so radically otherworldly that he's saying that regardless of your circumstance in this life, this li- your circumstances in this life is not your ultimate goal. It's not your ultimate end. You ultimately, we don't ultimately serve men. We ultimately serve God. And Paul really believed 
beyond a shadow of a doubt that God-fearing slaves on earth will be kings in heaven. And that people who mistreated their servants or their slaves or their, uh, or their uh, employees, for example, will have to do what? Will have to give an account to God of why they mistreated God's servants in the last day. You see, his perspective was so otherworldly, was so sure about the coming judgment, about the reality of Christ and the world that is to come, that it does what? It relativizes our understanding of our own position here. Because if, we, if, we're, if our minds are so captivated by our, our present circumstances, then that, of course that's all we care about. But when our minds are fixated on the fact that our present circumstances are, will be over just like that and we will soon stand before Christ, well then that relativizes it. That allows us then to do what? To love other people who, guess what? Who don't even deserve it. Because guess what? Because life is short. <laughs> And all I got to do is honor Christ while I'm here. And he will give justice and he will give reward. We don't ultimately serve men. We ultimately serve God. And God is the ultimate master of all. And so, as I said, if, if, if the Christian is God's servant, which we are, and someone is mistreating God's servant, what do you think that, what will happen to that person when they have to give an account for mistreating one of God's servants? So this means then that even in a position of servitude, we do good. And that's why Peter can say, he says literally, he says, servants be subject, it literally says all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, that is the wicked and the corrupt. So Christians then and now were called to respect whatever authority is above us, even wicked authority, doing good and returning good for evil, entrusting ourselves to God and adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter says that this, in fact, is a gracious thing. He says it's a gracious thing, if you can believe that. To suffer, he says, in mindfulness or in consciousness of God, doing good with a humble heart towards Christ. So it's a gracious thing. Why? Because... Because Jesus, we're going to get to it very soon, pronounced blessing on those who what? Suffer for righteousness' sake. The reason, one of the reasons why Christians can endure and even submit to unjust authority is because we believe that ultimate justice will be had in the world, right? If I didn't believe justice would be done, then I'd have to do what? I'd have to get my own justice, right? But since I don't have to do that because what? Because God's going to do it, then I can do what? I can trust God. I can trust God and, do, and, and return evil with good. Turn disrespect, return disrespect with respect and honor. It's supernatural. But see, that's what he says. And if you suffer for doing good... Then Peter says this, then there is great reward for you. I mean, that's just, it's glorious reality, and it's the way that God's pleased. It's, it's just the way that he's pleased to do that. If we suffer for doing good, then there's a special reward for that. There really is. And so, and so, and so that's why, I, you know, I, I think if you read the Bible clearly, I mean, like the apostles, all of them what? They suffered. All of them except one, as far as we know, were killed for their testimony of Jesus Christ. And guess what? That's not, that, that, that will be to their credit. They will receive a special reward for their suffering for righteousness' 
sake. And so in that sense, God even redeems it. In that sense, we can actually endure suffering, not grumbling about it, but even with joy saying, man, I'm suffering for Christ's sake. What a privilege. And remember, that's what Peter, remember Peter and them said that. They counted it joy that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. Right? But, it, but Peter says, but if we suffer for our disrespect, if we suffer for our sin, that's no credit to anybody. Right? And so what we can, how, how can we do this in our lives? I think most practically for us, that may be with respect to our parents, for example, or our employers. Right? We don't demand... We, don't, we entreat. We don't disrespect. We honor in, those, in, certain t- in these types of relationships. And if we truly cannot do something in the fear of God, we will humbly say, I want to respect you however I can, but for Christ's sake, I can't do that. There is a way to show respect and honor even when you have to say no for Christ's sake. And when we give honor even to uh, those who don't deserve it, what are we doing? Well, we're imitating Christ who showed a great deal of honor and respect to the people who crucified him. But this isn't natural. It's supernatural. But as we do it, people will see the difference that Christianity makes. So number one, submit even to unjust authority. Number two, suffer for good in the steps of Christ. Suffer for good in the steps of Christ. We see this in verses 21 through 23. Peter says, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so uh, Peter continues this, this central admonition in this section of his book uh, about uh, the call to suffering and what it means to suffer as part of the Christian life. Uh, Jesus gave us an example of suffering. His life, Jesus' life, was preeminently a suffering life. And so if we're going to be followers of Christ, we have to be prepared to suffer for Christ. Following Christ isn't going to be easy. The call to follow Christ is the call to take up your cross and follow Him. We must suffer because Christ suffered for us. And therefore, if we're going to be Christ-like... We're going to have to suffer like Christ. That's how it works. And in fact, if again, if you read the New Testament, those who suffered for Christ counted it an honor and a privilege to be counted worthy to suffer for the name. Suffering is not accidental or incidental, accidental or incidental to the Christian life. It is essential to the Christian life. 1 Thessalonians 3, 2. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. It's part and parcel of the Christian life. If we're going to follow Christ somewhere or another, we're going to have to suffer for it. 
And, by the way, we're not going to suffer with a bad attitude. Because what's supernatural about that? Anybody can do that. But when we suffer for Christ with humble, faith-filled trust in His purposes and are able to maintain a spirit of true joy even in the midst of sorrow and gratitude even in the midst of suffering, that is supernatural. When people can see that our greatest hope is not in this world, that is supernatural. When we can truly suffer in a way such that people can see that our hope belongs not in this age, but in the age to come and in our Christ, that, will, that is supernatural. We mentioned uh, recently, and I mentioned recently another sermon about how there's well-attested numerous pagans were converted when they saw the, the, the calmness and the kindness and the gentleness with which Christians stood in the Roman Colosseum about to be killed. And the kindness and the gentleness which even, with which they even treated those who were about to kill them. What, why? Because... God supernaturally in that moment gave them strength to really believe what is true. And that is, I was going to die anyways. And this life was fleeting. And if I have one chance to honor Christ, then I'm going to take it. And whatever he calls me to, I trust him. It's supernatural. Christ is our example. Christ suffered for us. Remember That Christ said, that he said this, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And so Jesus went to the cross. He didn't begrudgingly go to the cross. He chose the cross. He volunteered for the cross. For you and for me. And because he is our example, then what? We have the privilege of sharing in his sufferings so that we can share in his glory. Philippians 3, verse 8. Apostle Paul said, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and get this, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, the Apostle Paul He counted it part of God's grace to him that he would share in the sufferings of Christ. Because he knew that if he became like Christ in his death, that he would also become like Christ in his resurrection from the dead. If we want to share in Christ's resurrection, we also must share in Christ's death. And part of that death means dying to self, dying to sin, Dying to my plans for me to submit to God's better plans for me. And yes, that could even mean dying to a life of comfort and ease. To suffer for Christ's sake. 
How else do we follow in Christ's steps? Verse 23 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile. Uh, uh, well, verse 22 first, he says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So how do we follow Christ's example in this? Well, we have to be like Christ who committed no sin. Of course, we can't do that perfectly, but I think in context, what Peter's trying to say is that just as Jesus suffered not for sinning because he didn't sin, in the same way, we're to follow his example, right? If we're going to suffer, let's suffer for righteousness' sake. Let's not suffer for sin's sake. And if we live righteous lives, right, we know, we know that not all suffering is a result of sin. We know that. But some is. Some is. We can't, we don't, we, we can't totally downplay that teaching of the Bible. Sometimes there is. God, the Bible says God disciplines those whom he loves. So, but, this is what Peter's getting at. But if we live righteous and holy lives for God and wake up every morning and repent of our sins and follow Jesus and strive by the grace that is in Christ Jesus to live a holy life before God and we have a clean conscience before God in all that we do, then if we do that, then we can know that when suffering does come, at least we'll know it wasn't for sin and that it's suffering for Christ's sake. And then he goes on to say, verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus did this. I mean, it's almost exactly what we talked about this morning. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When someone reviles you, what do you want to do? What do you do? When Jesus was reviled, if there was, you see, there's one key difference. When, when, if somebody reviles me deep down, I know that I'm worse than they think I am. But with Jesus, it's not so. And yet, even when Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile and retire. And he truly was perfect in every way. How do, you, how do we respond when somebody mistreats us or disrespects us or reviles us or ignores us? How do we respond when that happens to us? You see, how we respond in those situations tell us a great deal about how important we feel like we are. The more offended I am, the more important I believed I was. And you know, there's actually a great freedom to say, if somebody mistreats us, there's a great freedom to say, in Jesus Christ with a humble heart, I deserve worse. I'm going to keep serving my Savior. And how about this? What if, when somebody disrespects you, when somebody disrespects me, what if I got as upset as upset as I get about that, what if I got as upset about it when somebody disrespected Jesus in my presence? But you see, some of us, we're more jealous for our own name than we are for Jesus' name. We'll put up with Jesus' name being maligned and won't, and won't say a word, but if someone disrespects me, I'm going to say something about it. Christ didn't return reviling for reviling. 
He didn't threaten when he was disrespected or dishonored. What did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And you see, that goes back to what we were saying. That's the key. That's the secret. I believe this is it is repeated throughout the New Testament. That one of the primary ways that Christians can endure wrong and return good for evil is we entrust ourselves to God who's going to do what? Who's going to judge justly one day? In fact, go read Romans chapter 12. Paul says, Beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but leave it, for, leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, declares the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not, uh, retu- do not, become, do not become over, overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, the way Christians can endure wrong in this world is by what? Entrusting ourselves to God who's going to do what? Who one day is going to right every wrong so I don't have to. And that's what Jesus did. And guess what? Jesus was wronged more than anyone else in human history has ever been wronged. The only sinless person who ever lived crucified on a Roman cross. But he did it willingly for you and for me. And because of that, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And one day, he's going to come back. And every wrong committed in the world, everything done in secret that they thought they got away with it, guess what? It's going to be brought to light. And those who entrusted themselves to him, humbly, meekly, in faith, will be vindicated. So number one, submit even to unjust authority. Number two, suffer for, the, in, suffer for good in the steps of Christ. And number three, die to sin and follow Christ. Die to sin and follow Christ. Read this in verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so, this is just, Peter here just kind of launches into just a, uh, dwelling on Christ. He just, he just launches into this um, uh, just explanation of, of what Christ is and what he came to do and how that empowers us to be whom he's calling us to be here. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. This is one of the clearest statements of substitutionary atonement in the Bible. Jesus stepped in our place and bore our sins in himself on the tree. So that why? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus died for our sins so that we could die to our sins. He forgave us of our sins so that we wouldn't have to be enslaved to our sins anymore. But so that our old self could die with him on the cross. So that our new self could be raised to life with him in his resurrection. And the moment we turn from our sins and trust in Christ, it is as if that resurrection life flies from that empty tomb and enters our heart in that very moment. And we're made new. And so that through Christ we die to sin and we live to righteousness. And by the way, this is the only way to truly live. Because, why? Because the wages of sin is death. And so a life of sin isn't really life. 
It's, it's living death. The only true life is righteous life. A life, a life that we, uh, as, Paul, as Peter said, live, die to sin so we live to righteousness. And so we can live. We can live this way. It's not if, but we can. Why? Because of what Peter has already said. We've been born again to a living hope by the living and abiding word of God that dwells within us such that our old self has died and that new self has been raised to life in us so that we can live righteous lives because of Christ who died for us. And then Peter quotes, this is, he's quoting Isaiah 53 here. By his wounds we have been healed, Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus' wounds are our healing. His reception of the punishment for our sin is what? Is the removal of the punishment of our sin from us. He's bearing it in our place so that we are healed from sin and its effects. From our guilt, from our shame, from our fear. We can live lives of holy, bold, courageous love, returning good even in the face of evil. We can entrust ourselves to a God who judges justly even in difficult circumstances and situations. Because Christ's wounds have purchased that ability for us, that capability for us. And then finally, Peter closes with this. He says, For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's another allusion to the very next verse in Isaiah 53, verse 6. He says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. But what Peter is saying and what he's saying to the church is, yes, we've all done that, but you, because you're a Christian, you have returned. You're not straying anymore. You've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of, our, of your souls. And the shepherd and overseer there denotes Christ's authority. So what does it mean? Well, it's, it's, it's coming full circle. We were wandering like sheep, but now we've returned. So guess what? We don't have to live the way that we used to. We don't have to set all our hope in this world like we used to. We don't have to be afraid and live in fear like we used to. We don't have to just try to cower and try to work and try to make everything the best possible situation here. But rather we can live bold lives of faith and self-sacrifice and love for the sake of others in this life because of the reward that's coming. And we can do that because we've returned back to the shepherd and overseers of our soul. And we can do these kinds of things even like submitting to wicked authority because ultimately we don't serve man. We serve God. And Christ is our shepherd. Christ is our overseer. He's our boss. And if we serve him, and if we belong to him, he's watching over us. God's watching over his children. Which means this, that when it's all said and done, he's going to vindicate his children. He's going to reward your faithfulness, your trust, your entrusting of yourself to him. 
and he'll punish all evil and wickedness to the precise degree that it deserves. So we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to fear. We can submit even to unjust authority. We can suffer for good in the steps of Christ, and we can die to sin and follow Christ. And, um, and as we do that, all we're doing is this. We're being what the church has been for 2,000 years. Go read the Hall of Faith in the book of Hebrews. Look at what happened to most of them. We're in good company when we suffer for Christ. So we don't have to get angry. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to get bitter. We can trust, entrust ourselves to a great God. And he'll see and he'll reward. And as I close this morning, I mean this evening... Um, the invitation's open. Christ is the king. There is a different way of looking at the world, of not having to scramble for me, me, me in this life, but of having been forgiven of our sins. We can live a life of bold self-sacrifice and self-denial for the glory of God and for the good of others now and eternal life in the age to come. And that life can be yours. If you'll turn from your sin and believe in this king, trust in him and bow your heart to him. Call him, call him master and Lord. And you'll never be the same. And you too can know what it's like to serve a master that it's, uh, that it's worth it to say to him, Lord Jesus, put it all in my ear. I'll be yours forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for tonight. Thank you for the men and women that you